Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. As we've gone through our study so far on the book of Matthew, and so we had that little break um, over the last couple of weeks, we have continually throughout, we have seen the fact that Jesus had as his original message, if you would, to the um, children of Israel, the message of repentance. It'll come up in a moment. There we go. Repentance. And if you remember, the word repent in the Greek, metanoia, means change the way you think. He said, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. It perfect sense. Remember that? It already has come. Jesus was there in their midst, and so therefore the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, was there. And as a result of that, they needed to re-evaluate their thinking process. That their thinking process had had changed. They had, and we'll talk about this later when we get into um, the the closer to his crucifixion. We have a little snippet of that before the passage we're going to look at today. But they had in their mind that when Messiah came, he was going to be what? A military leader. He was going to, in our vernacular today, he was going to be one of the superheroes. Okay? He was going to come, and he was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. It was going to take a superhero to do that. But he was going to be that, that military leader, that, that great Messiah that they were going to come. And so, Messiah was in their midst. But they needed to change the way they thought. And that wanted to become a theme, if you would, of his teaching to his disciples and all those others that happened to gather around him. And they heard him teach. He was continually challenging them to change the way they think. And again, then I think, Um, that is applicable to you and I today. Even 2,000 years later, we are so influenced by the thinking process of the world that we, without realizing it, we we hold opinions and we consider things from just a purely secular, worldly frame of reference. And and we need to, to think about how we think about things. And so today's passage, kind of a, a word breakup where I'm, where I'm going here with this, but I, I have seen this similar trait um, where, where um, a character traits, two character traits here, that are Matthew juxtaposes together in these um, uh, accounts of things that happened during Jesus' ministry. So again, remember, Jesus is ministering for a long time. Matthew's not telling us everything. Make sense? By the inspiration of God, he's writing what God wants him to place for us. Is that making sense? And so I see two character traits here. One is greatness and one is humbleness or humility. We can say humility on that way as well. And they are two traits that according to the world are polar opposites. Someone who is great, generally from the world's perspective, isn't very what? So without being political... Can you give me a name of someone who is pretty great but doesn't seem to be pretty humble? Tiger Woods. So, Tiger Woods. I wasn't going there. I was going political, but okay. Tiger Woods. I was kind of going with President Trump. <laughs> What's that? Pretty much any president. Pretty much any president. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you have to have a delusions of grandeur to become president, I guess. Um, but anyways, but yeah. And so I'm not picking on President Trump. I mean, I pray for him, and we have this week, right? And so continue to pray for him. But in our mind, that almost epitomizes what the world's perspective of greatness is. That I got there how? Me. Me. I did this. I was able to accomplish this. But in the kingdom of God, the mindset of the kingdom of God, so putting on the mind of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, you know, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very morphe, the very nature, the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself in no reputation, but took upon himself the form, the morphe, of a serpent, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he what? He humbled himself. 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That's that concept that we see played out here in these two things. And so, first we want to, as we look at this need for humility, we see the in the necessity of humility in the kingdom of men. That there is a need for us as believers, if we're going to follow having the mind of Christ, to play out this concept of humility or humbleness in the kingdom of men. Now, in doing it, the first thing I want to talk about is your station in life. Okay? Not the station in life, but who you are. Our station, our bearing, who we are. And I don't talk about this a lot. I, I don't like the I am's, you know, wake up every day and, and do these I am's. I am the child of God, and I am this, and I am that. Because there's only one I am. Make sense? And so when I begin to do all this, I am, I am, I am, I am, and I, it's good to remind yourself every once in a while who you are in Christ, but an over-focus on who you are then be, it leaves out the focus of who he is, and that's the only reason that you are, if it makes sense. But look at what we see right in the very beginning here in this passage. It says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Okay? So we're in the heels of him stating this. Okay? And we're not really spending time on this because we'll spend time on it. But he's letting them know ahead of time he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be what? He's going to be killed. Is it going to come by surprise? No. He's going to what? If you would, using what we're going to talk about today, he's going to what? We already know this from Philippians 2. He's going to humble himself. Make sense? He's going to allow himself. We'll talk about this at the very end again, okay? And so, we then go into verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter. Did they come to Jesus? No, they came to who? They came to Peter. And they said to Peter, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. Now, look at the question first. What were they expecting the answer to be? No. Okay? Why? What did they know about Jesus? What has Jesus already been proclaiming? So, Jesus, remember, they just came back from, from Caesarea Philippi. Okay? And, 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 and Jesus says to, to, the, um, to his disciples, what? What was the question? Who do, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they said what? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, a good prophet. Right, okay, that's it. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, okay? Now, many of them started to understand and believe that he was who? Messiah, but they had a what? A different thought process who Messiah was. So as these guys collecting the temple task come, they, they realize who Jesus at least proclaims himself to be, whether they actually what? Believe it or not. Make sense? And so, they're expecting to know. That's why the, the question is worded the way it is. Does your, not, does your teacher not pay the ta temple tax? Well, no, he's not going to. Why? Because he's already said what? Say again? Well, he's God's son, but what did he specifically tell him? Got to go think way back in the, in the messages now. What did he, who did he say he was and what he was? He was the Lord of the Sabbath. And second, in that same passage... He was greater than the temple. He was greater than the temple. He's Lord of Shabbat, Shabbat. Okay, So therefore, he should say what? No. In fact, he brings this out in just a moment. Okay, But Peter says, sure. Because he's thinking what? This is okay. This is what we're supposed to do, right? And so when he comes to Jesus, Jesus already knows about the conversation. He's been bugging Peter, he's got a little mic on him. No, he knows what? All things. This is amazing. Not just in his presence, he knows it from a distance, right? And so Peter comes to him, and he says to Peter, he says, What do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are what? Free. Look at the next word, at least in the New King James. Okay, It's what? Nevertheless. Okay? Anybody have another word in your ears? Say again. However. However. What version do you have? ESV? What is ESV? Zoe? Yeah. Yeah. So however. Anybody else a different word? Different version? Okay? The idea is that 
in spite of that, that's exactly right. This, the sons are free. But in spite of that, we're going we're to put that down, and we're going to talk about this in a moment. Okay? In spite of that, in spite of that, I want you to do this. Lest we what? Lest we offend them. Lest we put a stumbling block in their way. We'll come to that part in just a moment. Okay? I want to talk about this first part. Who we are. Because this is really crucial. The first thing is, we're citizens of the kingdom. Not this kingdom. We're citizens of a higher, greater kingdom. Turn with me then to Philippians chapter 3. Okay? We're going to look at a bunch of verses today. So go ahead and turn there. Philippians 3. I'm not throwing them up on the screen today. So that we use our Bibles and not just let them sit there. Philippians 3, verse 17. Paul's writing to the believers of Philippi, and he says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on what? Earthly things. So many walk, many walk. What, is, what do you think it means by that? Many walk, of whom I told you often. Many walk. They seem to be what? Christians. Okay? They, they, they seem that they're walking. They, they, they're, they're, they're in the church, if you would. They, they many walk, but whom I've told you often that they are actually what? What are they? Enemies of the cross of Christ. Look, if somebody's not a believer, Jesus says you're either for me or what? Against me. You're either my friend or my enemy. Do you, you get that? They're actually enemies of the cross of Christ. And how are they described then as these enemies of the cross of Christ? Whose God is what? Their belly. Glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Contextual difference here. Great. Contrast. For our citizenship is in heaven, so therefore our mindset should be what? Heavenly. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to himself. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And you, who were dead, I'm going to skip the he made alive, because you can see it's all in Telesis, right? And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature what? Children of wrath just as the others, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places, in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. Drop down to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow, what? Citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When you got saved, when you asked Jesus to be your Savior, if you really meant it, I say if, because many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, right? I don't know. But God does. But we have character traits that let us know of which kingdom you're following. Because Jesus said you can't serve what? Two masters. You're either going to serve the kingdom of this world, and therefore your God is your belly, your glory is in your shame, and you set your mind on earthly things. 
or your God is the true God, and your mind is set upon the kingdom of God, and you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. It kind of all makes sense. It all blends together. The word of God is, is, is consistent throughout. You used to be in that kingdom, living that way, but now you are otherwise. Colossians chapter 3, in the very beginning, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Oh, that's, we'll go to 1 and 2 in a second. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 13 14, as we're talking about citizenship. We're told that God, verse 13, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. As a result of that, then, go to chapter 3, verse 1. If then, if then, again the conditional, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. If you are in Christ, then you used to be a citizen of this earth. But if you are in Christ, you are now a citizen of heaven. Do you get it? You're not going to be. You already are. You have a dual citizenship. How fun is that? Jessica married Sam. Sam grew up in Nova Scotia. He's a Canadian citizen. But his parents are Dutch from the Netherlands. And as such, when he was born to them, being Dutch citizens, he became a Dutch citizen. But being born in Canada, he was a what? Canadian citizen. So he has, a, he has dual citizenship. Does it make sense? I was born in this world. But I've been adopted. How cool is that? And in that adoption, we're going to go to that in a moment, I not only became a child of God, I became a citizen of heaven. I already am. I'm not looking forward to it. I am, I'm looking forward to actually being there. But it's not something that I have to look forward to actually happening, because it's already happened. I got my visa already. I just haven't seen it. It's spiritual. It's already been stamped. Secondly then, as citizens of his kingdom, he, we are in this world for a reason. I'm his representative. Literally, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells me what? I'm a what? Anybody remember? I'm an ambassador. An ambassador of what? Not, it doesn't say ambassador of Christ. Doesn't say kingdom of God. I'm an ambassador of, turn and find out. What is it? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 21. What am I? Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What am I? No, no, you're guessing. You're not looking. I know, I know, and it's going to kill you when you hear it. What? Does it say ambassador of Christ? Oh, it's not the word I think. I could swear it was going to say ambassadors of reconciliation. It is Christ, you're right. Ah, I mess, I mess, I'm wrong. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. So ambassadors of Christ, maybe for reconciliation. Anyways, I always have had ambassador of reconciliation. We are, our job on this earth is very specific. Now, I'm supposed to be being conformed to the image of Christ, Romans chapter 8. We got that, right? But as I'm being conformed to the image of Christ here, I have a specific function. And that is to bring the message of reconciliation. The great king, the great king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the universe has sent me. That's why it's so cool about seeing that message from way back 1985, I don't know, 33, 30, well, however many years, 34 years ago. God working in my life. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. The Father sent me to reconcile all things to himself. We know that from Colossians chapter 1. That was the purpose of Christ. And he sent us with the same purpose, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we might be ministers of reconciliation to the world. And yet, 
I'm acting like James and John asking Jesus to call down the thunder and the fire and the, and the, and the brimstone. Do you remember what Jesus' comment to James and John were when he asked about when they asked him about sending the, the, the fire down? It's exactly right, David. You guys don't know what, what spirit you are. This isn't, this isn't the, the heart of your father at all. Judgment's going to come, but that's ultimately not God's heart. God's heart isn't to judge. God's heart is to save. God's heart is to reconcile. That people would be would drawn back. And so if you've been here in Sunday school going through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we've seen the pattern. God continually warns. God continually warns. God continually warns. But God ultimately is going to judge. But God's ultimate desire is that he's going to what? Reconcile them back. Reconciliation. Restoration. Reconciliation. Restoration. It's all throughout the prophets. That's God's heart. And so that's our job, is to go out with this message of reconciliation. That's the good news. The good news isn't fire insurance. The good news isn't say a prayer so you don't have to go to hell. Good news is God wants a loving relationship with you. And he wants to hug you, if you would, spiritually speaking. He wants a restored relationship. He doesn't want slaves. He's not asking for slaves. He could do what? I mean, think about this. What could God do? He can make you slaves. He can make you slaves. He can make a donkey talk. He can make you slaves. But that's not what he wants. What he wants is a relationship. So we are representatives of his kingdom. Acts 1.8. Jesus gave a promise to his, his early disciples, which I think then applies to us as well. And he states something. Just as he said way back in the beginning when he first called Peter. Remember this? He gave, he gave him the message, repent, and, 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 you know, um, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. And then he turned to Peter and said what? Follow me. He gave him a command. And then he gave him a promise. What was the promise? I will make you fishers of men. So if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men, right? And so now, here Jesus is getting ready to go, and his last command, his whatever, to them, is what? You will what? You will be witnesses. You will be witnesses. When will you be witnesses? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses. Isn't this interesting? And you will then go forth. I mean, I'm extrapolating onto that. You're going to go out, as he said, into all the world, and you're going to make disciples. As the Father sent me, so send I you. We are to go out. We are citizens of heaven who have been given a commission by the king to represent the kingdom of the heavens wherever we go. Do you understand your royal calling? I don't have to marry Prince Charles or Queen Elizabeth or somebody else to be royalty. I am of greater royalty than they are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has chosen what? The weak things, the things that are not in order to confound the strong and those who think that they are. Queen Elizabeth was once stated, she says, I'm glad that it says that it, in God's word that he hasn't chosen many noble, and it doesn't say that he hasn't chosen any noble. Big difference. Because it says that he hasn't chosen many nobles. She was glad because she could know Christ, because if it said he, he, that he wouldn't choose any noble, she would be left out. But we have a greater, and she understood this, we have a greater nobility than whatever any man can place upon you. How cool is this? But then even better than that, we are his what? We're his heirs. This blows me away. Totally blows me. I'm a joint heir with Christ. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. Behold, you guys know this one? You sing it, maybe, because you sing it. Behold, manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we 
may be called the sons of God. That we should be called the sons of God. Right? Behold what manner of love. How great is this? That we should be called the sons or children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't what? Know us. Because it didn't know him. How cool is this? John 1, verse 12. Can anybody quote that? right. So to many as believed in him, he gave the right to be called the children of God. And they didn't do it on their own. It's the idea. But if you believe, then you receive an inheritance. You become the child of God. Romans 8, 12 to 17. We've talked about this in the past too with prayer, right? Because it's talking about the privilege of prayer. We are his children and he places within us in this adoption. We have the spirit of adoption. And when we have the spirit of adoption, he, he places within us the spirit that cries out what? Abba. Abba. Daddy. 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 Could you hear? When he's on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I could almost hear him crying out, Abba. The Aramaic, Daddy. Daddy, where are you? Because he who knew no sin, what? Became sin. And he has through that... Can can you think this one through? Through that then, Romans 8... You have become a joint heir of who? Of Christ. Jesus himself. When Jesus died on the cross, do you know why he died on the cross? He paid the adoption price for you. Mark, how great is the adoption price? Not small. It took a whole lot of what? Fundraising and and everything else and people coming together and helping and and God to, to provide in miraculous ways in order to have enough funds. And Silas is the... Right? You, you're the beneficiary, Silas, of being adopted, yes? Is it exciting? Exactly right. We take adoption for granted. The adoption price was even greater than Silas's. And Jesus, think about this, did it in order that we could join with him in the inheritance do you remember the parable of the, of, the, of the prodigal child, prodigal son? There's really two stories in there, isn't there? We get it. There's the story of the prodigal who comes back and is, is lovingly received, but there's a, pro, there's a story of who? The other prodigal, who wasn't prodigal from the perspective of going out and wasting his wealth, but he's the prodigal who stayed at home, who think that he should have everything. And now he didn't want to share his what? Inheritance. He didn't have the mind of Christ. Get it? Jesus did all that so he could share Galatians chapter 4 that in the fullness of time that God would send forth his son born of what? Born of a woman, born under the law. For what purpose? That he would bring to us what? Come on, turn to Galatians 4 if you don't know. The adoption, the adoption. Jesus again was born. It was the whole purpose of his birth. That I would become not just a citizen, not just a representative, but I would be royalty. I'm just not a citizen. Make sense? I'm not a pauper in the kingdom. I'm not even just an ambassador or a diplomat. I am a prince. I'm a child of the king. By adoption... Not by birth. By birth, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm a child of who? Say again. By birth, I'm a child of the devil. But I've been adopted, hallelujah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, I was a slave. I mean, I was a slave in that other kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so it'd be exciting just to become a citizen. But he didn't just adopt me to be a citizen or adopt me. He didn't pay for me to just become a citizen. Oh, I needed a new scribe. I needed a new, I needed, a, I, I'll just bring him as a servant of my kingdom. You know? But to be his child, I always think of Ben-Hur in this. Just the, the, the powerfulness. Now, Ben-Hur, I mean, I know Judah Ben-Hur was already a prince of Judah. I get that. But just the picture of what it was, he was a galley slave. Just what you're saying. He was a galley slave. Who affection was set upon. Now, I understand there's some works plays out there. But whose affection was placed, and he becomes then a child, a son of a powerful Roman um, general. We are joint heirs with Christ. <clears throat> but the need then for our submission as well. Because then the second side is, but nevertheless, nevertheless, lest we what? We offend them. Turn to Matthew 22. We'll look at this in months to come, probably closer to August, um, maybe July. Um, Matthew 22. But a little snippet here. This is part of them trying to trip Jesus up and to find um, any sin they could in him. And we'll talk about that again when we come to it, when we talk about that final week and the fulfillment of the feasts that there was. Verse 15, And the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples, their disciples, not his, with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and to teach the way of God in truth, and do not care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. He said, Show me a coin. Whose picture's on it? And it was whose? Caesar's. What's it say on it? It's Caesar's. Therefore, it belongs to who? Caesar. Does God need this? He doesn't need it. Therefore, if Caesar wants it, what? Give it back to him. It's his. So Caesar gave it to you. He wants a portion of it back. Give it back to him. Romans 13. We don't need to go there, but it says, you can. hopefully you know this passage, but it says, submit yourself unto the the ordinance of men. For there is no government that is given except that which is given by, by God. Another one of these folders I found when I went through this is a, is a paper I wrote in seminary on this very passage. And I titled it, this has been haunting me for years, for 30-something years, God's speed limit. Are you breaking it too? Anyways. It's the authorities of men. And God says in that passage, when you defy the authority of man, you defy the authority of God. That we submit under these earthly authorities because they have been appointed by God. When do we defy the authorities of man? When they defy the authority of God. If they come into my house and they tell me that my wife has to get a what? An abortion, we'll use that political hotspot, right? What am I going to say? No, you'll have to abort all of us. And it may happen that way. But you choose who I must serve. Do I obey God? Or men, right? Isn't that what, what Peter and the other apostles told them? We must obey God. And so later, then they came in, didn't we tell you? And they said, well, didn't we tell you? You guys need to figure this thing out. You're saying you're serving God, and you're making us not serve God. So we're going to serve God. You figure it out. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 25. We don't need to read that whole passage. It's all a whole passage on submission. But the very beginning of that passage, does anybody remember 1 Peter 2? Okay, let's turn there. Turn there. It tells us to submit to somebody. Does that help you? Beginning of verse 11. So, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may speak 
They may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, because we want to do what? Let the Gentiles see our good conduct. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as yet as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak but as bond for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's the government. Why do we submit to the government? Why do we submit to those who are in authority? Why? As a part of your witness. To glorify God. So it goes on to say about this. Look, if, if you suffer for doing wrong, what big deal is it? But if you suffer for doing what is right, then you are having the mind of Christ. You're living the life of Christ. That's what Paul says, that I may know you in the power of your resurrections and in the fellowship of your sufferings. Jesus didn't suffer for doing wrong. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Nevertheless, Pilate did what? Handed him over for crucifixion. So if you suffer for disobeying the law, you got pulled over by the cop for, for going 10 over. Shouldn't you got pulled over? I had a, uh, he's passed on now. An older believer is a, a dear friend of mine. I think I actually found in these things that I've discovered, this is so cool. I think I got Bible notes from him. I think, I think it's his handwriting. I, I'm hoping to find some of his kids and, and take a snapshot and said, you know, is this your dad's writing? I, I, there's some indicators that I think that it must be. It's just so cool for me just to... The, the, memorials of my life. Anyways, but he got pulled over in South Carolina once. And um, police officer, I won't call him a cop because I have sons who are police officers. But anyways, the cop pulled him over. Anyways, the police officer pulled him over, right? And um, in that day, if you weren't going to sign the statement saying that you did this, you had to go directly to the court. So he had to follow the police officer to the courthouse in that small town and appear before the judge. And so he had to go immediately before the judge. And so he went before the judge, and the, the, the charge was brought. And, um, and so um, the police officer says, I, I caught this man, um, um, I don't remember, going 62 in a 55 zone, I think is what it was at the time, because it was 55 back then. Okay? Some of you are like, really? That low? Anyways. And so, huh? Not even 10 over, but it doesn't matter. Your GSP. Or well, that's South Carolina, but you can pull anybody over. So he was going 62, 63, whatever, in a 55 zone, and and the judge says, "What do you have to say for yourself?" And um, this man, I was going to get ready to say his name, anyways, said, "There's no way I was doing that. I, I I looked down. I know I wasn't." And and the and the judge says, "Well, what would you say you were doing?" He says, "I might have been going 57 or so, but you know, da 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 da." Judge slammed the the gavel down and says, "56 to 65, same fine. You're guilty." Pay the fine. And he said, I said, what did you say? And he said, I just start laughing. And he, he says, that was really good. That was really good. Because the Bible says, by your own words, you shall be condemned. What was the speed limit? 55. We think if the cop doesn't pull us over, we're what? We're Okay. We're okay. And so he was going 57. He was going, he was breaking the speed limit. He knew it. But he wasn't as bad as those other guys who were blowing past him. And the audacity of this guy to pull him over when he's going to go two or three over, right? And the principle of the matter, I'm going to take it into the, and the judge brought him back to the what? To the point of the law. That's why Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit a, um, murder, but I say unto you, if you call your brother a name, You've committed murder. We love to play the law game. But we're told to submit. Submit. Philippians chapter 2. I just quoted this a little bit ago. The mind of Christ. That, that he laid aside his Godhead so that he could be crucified for you and I. He, who had all authority, submitted himself to the authority of men. Do you get it? If Jesus did it, that's what 1 Peter 2 is all about. 
If Jesus did it, then I as his disciple should what? Do it also. I'm telling you, this thing haunts me for 30-something years. Do you know how hard it is to set your cruise control for the speed limit? I only say that because there's no temptations overtaken me, but such is common to men and women. <laughs> it's just as hard to set it five miles over. It should be. No, I know. But it's easy. It's easy. Yes, but literally. That's right. Literally, it's just as hard. But it's easy to set it five miles over because we justify to ourselves. Make sense? That's what they think. So at setting it at 70, they really know you're going to go what? 75. That's why they're not going to pull you over unless you go 10 over. 10, 10% over is generally the idea. So 77. So as long as you go under 77, you're good. They're not going to pull you over because everybody understands the spirit of the law. And we justify this. So I can shoot you. As long as I don't kill you. Right? Because... No, because what was my intent? To hurt you. But we want to justify. You know, we say, no, that's stupid, Bob. But why do we pick and choose? Anyways, so it comes all the way down to this temple tax thing, which Jesus had every right to do what? To not pay it. But he says, lest we offend them. I've got to keep moving, okay? Lest we offend them. Because then he slides into this, this, this idea, this the, the, the greatness. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? And so we get into chapter 18, where we have this little thing, and David's probably going to start with this passage and talk about it a little bit more when he covers the rest of this in 18 next week. And it says that we have these, these children who are there, because the disciples come to him and they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The, the, the disciples are continually fixated on this whole concept of greatness. Do you realize that in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when they were, they were, they were doing the Passover together, it was a night before he was going to be arrested and taken in. Do you, when Jesus took off his outer cloak and he put on the towel and he went and washed their feet, do you know what the context was? They were arguing, they, they were arguing over greatness. They continually argued over this. Later on, Jesus is going to stop them. He says, what were you guys fighting about on the way? They're continually worrying about greatness. James and John's mom is going to come to Jesus, and he's going to, she's going to ask him, Hey, can I ask you one thing? What is it? Well, when, when you get there, can, can my son sit on your left and your right? <laughs> Just a little thing. <laughs> can they be the greatest when you get to your I, I, can, I, can, I, can they be number one and two? Forget Peter. Forget John. Or, not for John, but forget the others. Can James and John, can they be like your top guys? She wanted to be what? Great. And Jesus is continually ch- challenging this. So at this time, in this moment, when they ask us who is the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus comes back and he challenges them of the standard. Because the standard of greatness is different based upon whose worldview you're going to look at it. I mean, the worldview of the world, if you would, looking at it from a secular worldview, who's the greatest? From the secular worldview, who's the greatest? Say again? The richest. Okay. It could be the richest. The one with the most power. Usually those two things go together, but not always. It could be political power, right? Okay. So there are certain things in the world who are the greatest. It could be beauty. The one with the greatest beauty commands a lot of attention. It's amazing how there, you have these total opposite things. In the book of Ezekiel, God gives a, a prophecy against the prince of Tyre. And we know that it's not really the prince of Tyre that he's talking about, because we, he says, I knew you when you were in the garden. Who's he really talking to? Satan. Lucifer, right? And he says you were the, the prince of the angels. He was the archangel. And he says in that passage that, that Lucifer, Satan was over three things. There were three things that he was noted for. He was noted for music. He was noted for beauty. And he was over commerce. Isn't this interesting? Commerce. Commerce. Trade. Trade. The trading stuff. Right, but you think about it in the angelic realm, you think that's kind of interesting. How does that play out, right? But think about those three things. Music, beauty, and commerce. 
What are the three things that, yeah, wow. What are the three areas that Satan loves to bring us down in? Music, beauty, and money. Well, that's all part of that, too. Yeah, behind sports. That's commerce, yeah, in a sense. Okay, you can put a whole in beauty. I mean, really, from a different perspective. But think about that. If you want to be great, if you want to be great, right? We put all the rock stars up there, you know, and all this kind of stuff, you know? Idols of, of our land. It's just an amazing. But, but when you come to Christ, there's this total flip of how you're supposed to think. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus turns around and he says, the secret of greatness is really having the trust of a child. He says, they say, well, what, what's the secret of greatness? Who's the greatest? And so he turns around and he takes a kid. Now, we're going to get to this in a moment, okay? But I want to I talk about this as we play through the verse, okay? Because why he picks a kid is important in a moment. But look what he says. He takes the child. He says, unless you become like a child and you what? Are converted is the word. Literally, it's the word strefete, okay? And it means to turn, Okay, this is the action part of what we normally think of as repentance. When we think of repentance, we normally think of this word, strefate. Ep, and actually, literally, it's epistrefo. Is, so you put the epi with the strefate, the strefo, okay? And so it becomes epistrefo. And that's the word that we think of a lot of times for the word repentance. It is used two or three times in there, but the primary word is uh, metanoia, okay? But it literally is, I'm going on I-20. I got, and so... On Thursday, Andrew and I are going to, we're going to go, Lord willing, go to Pittsburgh to pick up my mom and dad, okay? And Andrew's going to drive a lot on the way up, okay? He'll probably drive this first strip. So this is Andrew in the car now. And I tell him, okay, buddy, you're driving and we're heading to Pittsburgh, okay? So go for it. You got the wheel. You got the con. Well, how how do you want me to go? I don't care. You know how to get there. You're going to go. So we're riding down Bobby Jones and all of a sudden we get on I-20. And we're heading down the road. Now, if you're watching me, and if you understand what I just said, we're leaving from, because I live right here, right? And so you're heading down Bobby Jones, and you get on I-20, and you're heading down the road. What just was a problem? I, I, I'm heading the wrong way. I should have gone like this, right? I should have taken the second one and did my little loop-de-loop and came back heading the other way, right? And so we're heading down the road, and, and as a good dad teaching him about paying attention to signs, I do what? I keep my mouth shut. I keep my mouth shut for just a little bit. It's extra driving time. I don't have to be at my dad's house at a certain time, right? The longer it is, I don't have to worry about going through rush hour in Columbia and Charlotte. So we're, we're heading the other way. And finally, we pass Bel Air Road, right? And he still hasn't done anything. And I, and I say to him, I said, hey, buddy, where are we heading? We're heading to Pittsburgh. What route are you taking? <laughs> I'm going through Atlanta. <laughs> I decided to take a long cut. <laughs> Anyways... Well, um, uh, well, which way is Columbia? We're heading to Atlanta. We're what? We're heading the wrong way. At that moment, what do I need to do? I need to change the way I think. And if I change the way I think, what's going to happen? I'm going to turn. But I'm never going to turn unless what? Unless I knew I was doing something wrong. That's exactly right. You get it? Jesus said you need to be like these kids. You've got to realize that you need to turn from the current path that you're on. That's your old man. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 4. We're also told it elsewhere in, in, that we're supposed to put off the what? The old man. But not just put off the old man. We're supposed to what? Secondly, put on the new man. And Jesus says, unless you are, you are converted and you what? Become. You become something. This is pretty cool. You turn, and then you become. You don't arrive. Make sense? Think about it. You don't arrive. You don't start doing. You don't turn and start doing. You turn and become. What do you become? We just talked about it. You become a citizen. You become a, you become a representative. You become a, an heir. Do you get it? You become. You change your life goals in becoming like a child. That's the new man. The new man understands, as we're going to see in a moment, that he doesn't know anything. 
like he thought he knew it. He used to, the Lord drew me to your, um, to your attention, Mr. Ben. I, I shared this Friday night with you. I mean, I, I just, I am so astounded by Ben's testimony. The humility. How old were you, Ben, when you got saved? Seventy-eight. Do you guys get this? Seventy-eight years old. He lived seventy-eight years. Ben, you were you were you weren't a very smart individual, were you? Oh, I was brilliant. You were brilliant. No, no, no. Good. No, he knew where I was going with one. He was according to the standards of this world. Ben was brilliant. Do you guys ever play with the? Um, some of you don't know this. Did you ever play with the little IBM typewriters back then? Remember that little ball that would go. It was a, it was a the, the big um, the selectric is that what it was called Ben that that it revolutionized. Do you know who designed that? You know who has some of the patents on that? He's sitting in his congregation. It's a brilliant man. But when you got turned seventy eight, you realized what Ben? I knew Christ, but I didn't know Christ. You knew of Christ. Uh, yeah. You knew of Christ, but you didn't know Christ, and you realized what you thought you knew you didn't know at all. Yeah, good. Who had been helping you all these years to be so brilliant? Isn't this amazing? Think about this. You've got to become like a child. You can't sit there and say, well, but I am it. Because you're not. You've got to become like a, a child. Micah 6, eight. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Peter tells us in Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with what? Humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's a quote from Proverbs. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. What do you think is being stated there? We ought to do what? Humble ourselves. That's what James then says as well. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Continually we're being taught, told over and over again that in the kingdom of God, we're supposed to humble ourselves. I could share with you the passage, right? The parable where Jesus talks about the guy who comes in and he sits at the head of the table. And then all of a sudden the, the host comes in and he looks at him and says, what? Hey, hey, you need to move. You need to go sit at the foot of the table. And then he has somebody else come in. He says, because those who, who honor themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be honored. The evidence of true humility, then he says to them, he says, is to receive then one of these children. Whoever then, verse 5, receives one little child like this in my name, receives me. The status of a child is huge. Because remember he said you need to become like what? You need to become like a child. A child was the least, other than Gentiles, in the, in the Jewish thought process. Again, remember we're going through Matthew, and you've got to think like a Jew here, okay? So when Jesus is sharing it, the Jewish people understood this. The child was nothing. Until they came of age, the child was nothing. They shouldn't, it's one of those, be seen in, not heard concept, okay? They were nothings, nothings. And now he's telling them that they need to do what? Receive the child. Now, wait a second now. So first we're told, unless you become like a child, so therefore you need to become a what? A nothing. You need to place yourself in the lowest strata that you can come to. And that's how you finally come. You're going to realize that you have nothing, 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 nothing to claim before Jesus Christ. But then he says, whoever receives the child, this gets even more. Because now, the one who receives becomes the servant to the one being received. Are you tracking with me here? The one who is receiving, becomes the servant, the one who's being received. If you come to my house, tradition, I mean, just, even most people understand this. Most people understand this. If you come to my house, 
you should expect something. What should you expect? That I'm going to what? I'm going to be hospitable. That's nice. Break it down for me. Come on. Let's be honest. What am I going to do for you? I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to give you, potentially I'm going to give you food. I'm going to serve you. In some manner, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to minister to you. I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to receive you in. Okay? And I'm going to give you a drink. I'm going to give you a place to sit. Da, 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 da. I'm, you came to my house, and I'm not there. And then I pull in, and I go in, and I open up the door. And I just go do about my stuff. The door's open. You can what? You can come in. You're welcome to come in. Whatever. Because I'm going to go about doing my own stuff. Have I received you? Do you feel welcomed? Am I serving you? Do you know what happens at 10.30? Or actually about 10.20 on Sundays? Sometimes at 9.20, 9.15 on Sundays? We have people that we've invited just in general, because we have websites and we pass out tracks and stuff like that, and they show up to our house, our joint house. It's called church. But we're not here. Or when they come, what happens? We ignore them. The one who is the receiver should become the servant of the one who's being received. And if we understand that we are in the kingdom of God supposed to be receiving the children, if you would, who were what? Nothings. Which means that I need to get it. This whole concept of humility. Because I'm not going to then, again, I shared in Sunday school, the beginning of Sunday school, I am not a very people-oriented person. Pray for me. I mean, I, I, I mean the Lord challenges me with this. I mean, it's so hard for me. I get so tunnel-visioned in, my, in the stuff that I'm doing. It's not that I don't care about people. I care about people, but I'm just not thinking about people all the time. And so, and so I, I, I need to work on that because people are, that's one of the things from Ezra too that God showed me, that people are important. People are very important. It's all about people. But we have our own delusions of grandeur, of greatness. And we want people to serve us. When you go to the church, do you go to find out what you can put in, or do you find out what they're going to give you? It's a whole different mindset, isn't it? The, the mindset of the world says what? You're going to find a church that does what? Makes you happy. Instead of you're going to go and you're going to what? Serve somebody else. Totally different mindset. Whoever is the receiver is to be a servant of the one who is to be received. So, in the end, what's your view on paying taxes? We didn't talk about that a whole lot, but Jesus is talking about taxes there, and we talked about the kingdom. Is it Christ-like? Would others consider you to be a humble person? Hmm. That's like the guy who got that humble badge, right? And then all of a sudden he put it on, and he came up and took it off. Why? Because all of a sudden he wasn't humble anymore. Yeah. Yeah. How much of a struggle is it for you to submit to others? I can be honest, because I know I'm not the only one here. Sometimes it's easy. When's it easy to submit? When they're doing what you want to do anyway. (laughs) It's when they're not doing what you want to do that all of a sudden what? When it's your wife. We can say that because they're not here. We're not sharing that one either, right? You know, no, they're going to listen to the tape. Uh, don't say it. On, it'll be on recording. Anyways, I'll edit it, I'll edit it out. Good, thanks. <laughs> it's a struggle sometimes, but that's a test of our humbleness and humility. We're told by Peter, I think, by, again, by the Holy Spirit, to submit to one another. That's the mark of a true church. What is your view of children? Is it Christ-like? I didn't share this a lot, and I don't want to go into it. But again, this is one of the things about, and again, I'm not judging us over churches, other churches, because we struggle in our own ways. But what's the mindset of a lot of churches toward children? They're in the way. Keep them out of the big service because they'll make too much noise. And we have kids sometimes make noise, don't we? Okay? Does it distract me sometimes when I'm teaching? It does. Does it distract you sometimes when you're listening or when you're interacting? It does. But you know what? Praise God for? For the children. That's where we need to change the way we think. Make sense? Because, again, inherently, 
on time. It's okay. It's on cue. That was awesome. He was praising God for that comment. That's exactly right. And everybody turns and looks at him. You know, but we do. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I sit there sometimes and I hear the kids and I want to turn around and look. Good grief, whose kid is that? And then I find it's my grandkid. Anyways, you know, <laughs> hopefully it's not my, my own, you know, youngest kids anymore, right? They're hopefully, but you two wouldn't do that. Anyways, so, yeah. anyways, what's your view of kids? Finally, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, you are so awesome that you humbled yourself and you became obedient even to death, the death of the cross for me. Lord, help me to honestly, truly to be your disciple and be willing to humble myself in your sight, in your presence, that I might serve you, that I might love others as you love them, not loving myself. Lord, help our assembly to grow in our humility toward others as well. In Christ's name, amen.